I'm totally normal. I do not. With this girl, we are on sex. She goes, Jeff, you've got a mean dick. You never forget when someone tells you you have a mean dick. Uh, but it turns out she was right because I have the national average. <laughs> Look around the room, you're not laughing. You're the lowest common denominator. I'm bringing you guys median dick energy. So all you may not be. Thank you for joining the ESBC podcast network all right uh every business meeting has to have a purpose and an outcome the purpose uh today is to educate you and enlighten you and we get to get a peek at a top hollywood la writer who has known a ton of celebrities he has uh an incredibly successful career but he started off as a software engineer for Google. And we're very lucky, privileged, and good to have Jeff Flint, right? Brian Flint on our, on, our <laughs> on our podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, good to be here. How are you? Hey, every day is a great day. We get a chance to, to fight. And first off, I wanna say congratulations on your career, man. You, you know, L.A. is not an easy place to live, and you conquered L.A., and you had a lot of great success and a lot of uh, great gigs. Thanks. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I feel like I'm still working my way up, but uh, I am proud of some of the things that I've done. I guess um, if the listeners aren't familiar, I'll, I, maybe I'll just introduce sort of my, my, my background and what I've been up to. Does that sound yeah, good? Yeah, yeah, and it's been name-dropping week on the podcast. On Monday night, we had uh, uh, Dale uh, uh, Suit, I believe is his last name, and he was talking about Dr. J, Michael Jordan, Phil <laughs> Jackson. He coached James Harden. He knows all the greats. And Clint, uh, uh, Jeff, uh, Jay Leno, right? And it's funny because uh, the bikini model that became the mayor of Lake Forest was a receptionist on the Jay Leno show when he did skits, Miley Cyrus, Matt Damon, right? Uh, Saturday Night Live, and you write uh, jokes for uh, Late Night, right? What are some of the Late Night guys you've worked with? By the way, these these things that Josh just mentioned are, are not, I'm not best friends with all these people. I just have <laughs> a story that mentions these people. Um, what was your last question? Uh, you write for Late Night Comedy. Well, so I started my, well, so, so I'll, I'll start from the beginning. Um, so I was born in Los Angeles and uh, my mom uh, is an occasional actress. My dad is a oh, nice. MIT trained uh, software engineer and I do a little wow. bit uh, of both. So I uh, grew up coding on computers and, and acting in plays and musicals. I went to college, Carnegie Mellon for computer science. Um, I was a nerd from the beginning, but I also right. started an improv troupe and I was uh, acting in theater and everything. And after that, um, I moved to Chicago. I did a bunch of improv and sketch nice. comedy, Second City and, and Improv Olympic. And uh, I've always really enjoyed comedy, but you know, I was never a class clown. I was never a, a comedian until um, I moved back to LA with a focus on, uh, I sort of had this instinct to, to get into stand-up comedy. And, um, and I got hired by Google. So that was about 12 years ago. 
Um, and uh, I worked for Google for a few years. And since then and before then, I've worked for a variety of startups. So I've just always had that day job. And, and you'll see as I get a little further here, how that sort of feeds everything else I'm doing. But I've been a stand-up comedian all this time and occasionally done a little bit of acting and this and that. And um, once the pandemic hit us all, I think right. like you, like yourself, Josh, and like many okay. of, of my um, friends and, and, and many people listening, uh, I had to ask myself, how has life changed? How can I right. continue doing what I want to do, um, but different? So some people are lucky. They still have their jobs. They still have their lives mostly the same. But, but most people, I think, had to make major adjustments in their life. I'm sure you did. Um, stand yeah, well, I got lucky, right? I'm lucky and good. And it's funny. And uh, for folks listening to the podcast, this will be a little different. When I get off sports, what I do is a stream of consciousness improv. But this guy's actually a professional in improv. He's going to go, yeah, we're going to flow. Yeah. So something Tim Conway Jr. said, right? And uh, he's going to help us out. We're going to be on KFI every Friday night. We'll get Jeff to go in there and sub for us sometimes. Uh, that there's a difference, right? Uh, a lot of the people, and you got a great YouTube channel, and we'll get the links and we'll have them on the episode notes. Uh, but to this point that the people that haven't had to adjust for the most part are the ones that are going in public trying to get other people saying, Oh, you need to go to work. You need to go to work, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, they're working from home <laughs> <laughs> and the people who are frontline, you know, they're the ones saying, Hey, uh, I don't know if risking my life uh, to save the economy uh, is something I want to do or something I should be forced to do. Yeah, one of my um, acquaintances, this uh, uh, comedian, uh, Sarah Schaefer, she tweeted, and I agree with this. She said, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the overlap between people who say all lives matter and right. people who won't wear a mask to save a single life. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. So, you know, before the pandemic, I had my own stand-up comedy show, a weekly show in L.A. that, that has done nice. really well. We've had... Um, uh, uh, it's at a bar called Bar Lubitsch and the show's called Jetpack. Um, and I ran this with, with my, with my buddy Pete Gersio for, um, about seven years. And, and over the years, not every week was like this, but over the years we had some, some cool names. We had Sarah Silverman, Bob Odenkirk, um, and, uh, Kevin Nealon from, from Saturday Night Live. And yeah, a Bob bunch Odenkirk of is, uh, uh, Don't Call Sal or something. He's Better Call Saul. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Better Call Saul. Yeah. And um, so this show became a way for me to network with um, the comedy world. I've met so Got many it. comedians, some of which are, are, are my friends and many of which I, are, are my acquaintances that I um, have uh, gotten into filmmaking with because I'm a film director as well. And nice. uh, uh, but also my my stage to practice and, and try out my own jokes. And um, that was that led me to I actually started as a beginner. I was doing open mics, uh, uh, you know, 10 years ago in Santa, but I got better and better. I started doing festivals and that's, I think where I've had the most success. Um, I've done, uh, I did the San Francisco sketch fest and I was a semi-finalist in a couple of comedy competitions. So, nice. um, you know, stand-up comedy is still, I'm still in the middle of my road on stand-up comedy. Right. It's not like paying all my bills, but you know, I, I make some money every year through stand-up purely through stand-up. And then, it just enriches my life in terms of the people that I meet 
and the opportunities that I get into um, uh, through that. So I met a comedian who, who uh, named Danny Jollis, very funny guy. He's, uh, you've probably seen him on um, uh, Rachel Bloom's show, right. uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And he and I sort of built this sketch group, his sketch group really, uh, Sasquatch. I filmed like 50 of their sketches just behind the camera. And right. then after the pandemic, when stand-up comedy died, because the, the last thing you want to do right now is be in a in a indoors packed audience with without masks and, and you can't really do stand-up indoors with masks and you know people can be laughing right. through the masks it just doesn't make sense um but some people are doing stand-up in in parks and outdoors and that's that's fine um and and some people are doing it on zoom you know this sort right. of works but I didn't, I didn't really, um, that didn't gel with me. I wasn't particularly uh, good at, at, at like jumping onto Zoom to tell this, the same jokes. You're good now, man. You're, you're tearing it up. I, well, I, I my, my thing, I decided that I wanted to get into late night writing. So a few years ago, I started writing. Um, and the difference is with stand-up, you're writing about yourself. You're writing about your life. You're writing about observation. Do you want evergreen content, jokes that you can use for years? But with uh, topical jokes, writing for late night, you're writing on this week's news, it's stale by next week or two weeks later. So, oh. but, I, and so at first I was afraid of that. I never really did that. But then a few years ago, I, I decided to start doing that. I, uh, I also realized that it would, uh, my Twitter was kind of, um, maybe once a week I would have one good joke and I was like how can I create more content and so I started writing jokes about the news and got better and better and then when the pandemic hit and I was looking for something else to do I decided hey I'm gonna start my own late night show so I have oh, this nice. YouTube show and uh, I write it every week I write like uh, 20 jokes I bounce them off my friends and they help me filter down to the 10 best ones and then I film those sometimes I do a long piece of story often I have a, an interview I, ha I have a guest on <clears throat> and sometimes the guest is you know being being real and, and talking about their real uh, uh, opinions and this and that but often it's like a sketch comedy thing where they've they've it's a it's sort of a fake interview like the daily show where they're play, they're being a char a ridiculous character or they've uh, you know done a news report so recently i had a mask denier on and this was my way to make fun of you know my personal belief is that is that we should wear masks. I don't want to like uh, right. trample on people's rights, but it seems like a very small trampling and, and, and a very large, uh, according to science, a very large medical benefit for slowing down the pandemic. Well, we interviewed a guy who, um, a friend of mine, he's a, he's a comedian, Josh Covet, and he was being a mask uh, denier, but showing the, the funny side of it. So it's a very funny interview. And, um, and you know, this show is also for me it's practice in getting into professional late night you know i'm really proud of my show and i'm growing it as much as i can but on the on, on the other hand i just wrote a uh, a writing packet for for late night uh, the late show with stephen colbert and nice. i submitted to, well, then, yeah no what, what you said lends perfectly to the stephen colbert show yeah and i submitted to uh, bill maher last year and so at some point uh, um, i i really love to to write for for one of these shows and 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 the show that i'm my show that i'm doing is the perfect practice for that i have this a pile of jokes from the last couple of months, very topical related to quarantine. You know, these aren't jokes from four years ago or even six months ago. These are jokes from the last three months. So it's very fresh. And I think uh, that's what people are looking for. You can't just do, if you're a comedian and you've got jokes about restaurants and airplanes and, you know, and dating. And right now, no one's going to restaurants. Very few people are going on airplanes. And uh, you know, I'm not dating. I mean, if you're, if you're in a relationship, fine, you know, if, right. but you no, know, I, I'm, I'm not doing any of those things. So you need, 
I think many comedians found a new challenge where they they know they need to create some some new content and and we're all finding our way to do that. Now, your brain fascinating. My wife's a psychotherapist, but you know, 70% of business is psychology and your brain fascinates me <laughs> as you got I can see it from your dad, right? You got engineering and then your mom the art side, but you're putting both elements of your brain together and meeting you just meeting you i would say all right this guy's an introvert but he is so brilliant that he can structure extrovert mess if that's a word and you're still monetizing because people have ideas all right this is what puts you way up up there right in society you don't just have ideas you're executing you're going out there you're not thinking about writing a packet for late night you're thinking about it and boom you're sending it man that puts you way up there on the on the high percentile. How do you well, do it? Well, um, I think I learned a lot by by when I was a, a kid. Uh, let's say in high school, I, I was pretty ac ac academic. I took like ten AP classes, and I was, right. uh, but I didn't get straight A's. I was always just really drawn to learning the most. So instead of getting straight A's in the non-AP classes, I got you know B pluses and A minuses in, in AP classes because it was more important to me not to get good grades, but to learn the most. And so um, I, I guess I've always been driven by learning. But when I went to engineering school, engineering school, the thing that all the engineering practices have in common, they call it problem solving. It's like puzzles, like every day having a stack of puzzles and you're gonna solve some, you're gonna fail at some, but you gotta try. And right. always trying to push yourself slightly more and do better. So, I, I mean, that was a, that's something I bring to whatever I do. Everything I do is like a puzzle. It's like, uh, it's like solving something, e even let's say filmmaking. Um, right. I, when I first got into filmmaking and I didn't go to film school, but I got a camera and I started learning about exposure and lens. You're a brainiac, man. Whatever it is, you can figure it out. Yeah, well, it's probably similar to you. And, um, you know, once I started to realize that when you're on a set and you're shooting something, the puzzle is has many dimensions besides the lighting and the camera and the sound. Okay. Those are the technical dimensions. You also have actors, some of which know their lines, some of which do not. Some of which are funny, right. some of which are not really being that funny. And I'm fascinated by, you know, the moment after you call cut and before you call the next action, what is the most efficient, quick set of sentences you can say to this guy and that guy and this person and this lighting person and that makeup girl and, and this, whatever to get a better, uh, take on your next take. You don't have 20 minutes to talk with flowery artistic language. It's like, let's get to the, let's get to brass tacks right now. And so I'm all about finding efficiencies and, and, uh, and getting, you know, uh, for me, you, you have to take the finish line for granted. When I had this, the writing assignment to, to write a, 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 to submit to, to a late night show, I knew I was going to submit something in the end. Right. Um, I, I, I didn't, I didn't say, am I going to do this or not? I said, I'm going to do this, but let's see if I can send a good one instead of a, a half-assed one. Often I find, especially in anything creative, that what um, helps a lot is brainstorming. If you start with a so-called blank page, it's intimidating. And it is for me as well. But if you start by saying, let me first map out everything I might pull from. So for, for this example, I, I, I didn't just think what happened in the news this week. I sat down with news feeds and started going through hundreds of news stories on these news feeds and, and writing down all the ones I was going to pull from that week. And that week it was like Roger Stone got out of jail and, um, and it was ridiculous, right? Doing the George Floyd thing, George yeah. Floyd gets the death penalty and Roger Stone gets a free out of jail card. 
Yeah. And, you know, I started writing down lots of different jokes. And then only after I've done all that, do I step back and go, what are the common areas here where I can build a bigger piece out, a bigger hole out of the pieces? So I'm very deconstructionalist, I get. Some friends call oh, me- yeah, a, That's an engineering mind, which, which fascinates I so. me. And then I guess so. this is consulting, you have a design theory. Yeah. Um, I've always found that if you can deconstruct a problem into its pieces and its parts, um, even a creative problem, anything from um, painting to uh, writing novels to poetry, anything your, your listeners might be into in their creative endeavors, um, uh, there's, there's an inspiration part of it that is totally right-brained and is totally, right. is, is hard to nail down and practice, perhaps. But I think there's a, there's a 80% of it, there's some famous quote, maybe it's Einstein, maybe it's not, but there's and right. the quote something like, you know, genius is 10% inspiration, but 90% perspiration. And right. I totally agree. They when you're not inspired. From inspiration. Yeah, and when you're not inspired having, so when I'm not feeling inspired, I have writing techniques that will fill in the gaps and at least get me something. It might not be the most inspired thing, but I'll have I'll have some jokes. Or if you're um, if you're if you're a screenwriter um, and you don't you know you're not feeling a particular uh, scene, you can brainstorm actors' motivations. You can brainstorm um, premises. You can brainstorm uh, occupations. You can brainstorm ironies. So building and collecting a list of techniques to break you out of writer's block to, 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 to sort of let you see things from another perspective, I think is the best way to approach a creative endeavor. And to that end, right. Uh, when Joe Rogan talks about the comedy store, right. And he talks about being friends with uh, the Wayne, the Wayman brothers and, you know, they sit and they talk, what is that different? Right. And I guess uh, Polly's mom started the comedy store than uh, what you were, were describing at the bar. Well, do you mean, what is it like to be doing alternative comedy in, in bars and, and separate from, from uh, clubs? I, the corporate structure, right? Because now Rogan, I don't know if he owns a piece of the comedy store and now he's big versus what you're talking about. My first degree was in British literature, right? And Shakespeare, people think about Shakespearean plays, but for the most part, plays were little dramas kind of, or even comedies that were at pubs, right? They were in front of the pub in the back. Uh, yeah. They would do spoken word. It would be four or five people come from the village and they're doing some bit, <laughs> yeah. you know, versus a corporatized version of it. Well, I think um, Joe Rogan um, single-handedly revived the comedy store. When I moved back to L.A. 10 years ago, the comedy store was pretty dead. There was just wasn't that much going on. So he brought himself as well as a collection of other comedians there and kind of revived it. And now, at least until the pandemic, it was the, the hot place to be. But, so, you know, for me, I, I perform in comedy clubs um, the most when I leave L.A. because that's where the most opportunities are. L.A. Wow. is where... LA is where like thousands of comedians live. It's so competitive. So LA is the hardest place to get onto a comedy club stage, but I still perform at the comedy clubs here in LA about uh, three or four times a year. But my bread and butter is alternative venues. So for, the, for people who don't really know what that means, that means I performed in a yoga studio. I performed in the back of a bar. I performed outdoors in a park. Um, in a comic book shop, you know, um, even uh, a few times in, in, a, in a large person's home, like downstairs in the basement of a mansion. There's just so many cool places at, at a music venue. So there's so many cool places besides the comedy club 
that um, that you can do your comedy. Obviously, if you can get to the comedy clubs, great. But here in LA, where they're very competitive, you try and you don't get booked. You got other places to go. And ultimately, for stand-up, and it's not only for stand-up that I that I believe this, but let's just right. take for stand-up. Um, bouncing your material off of other people is the only way you figure out what's good. So some people, I don't know how they do it. Geniuses, they just sit down and everything they write is perfect without showing it to anybody. But me, I need to vet my ideas. I need to bounce them off other people. And with stand-up, there's no substitute for going to an open mic or something like that, whether it's these small little shows. Sometimes I'll do a show where there's just 15 people and in the back of a bookstore. Um, and that doesn't sound that exciting, but once I calibrate and I realize, okay, if I get four la four people laughing on this joke, that means in this room that worked. And right. if zero people laugh, then it didn't. So once I calibrate, I can test my new material that way. And there's always a balance um, for a performer between, uh, for a performer who's, who's doing new material all the time, between testing the new material or doing tried and true because you want to look good. Because when you're testing stuff, a lot of it fails and you don't look as good. But when you're trying only stuff you know that works, you'll look really good, but you won't get the opportunity to test stuff. So what I'll do is I'll balance these two things. If I'm at a comedy festival and there's important people in the room, I won't do anything new because I want to look great. And, right. But if I'm at the back of a bookstore and I don't really care about who's there. I'll just do very new stuff. And, right. um, and uh, there's no... Some people ask, how do you get into comedy? Uh, there's no real shortcuts. I just did open mics for years. I didn't, I mean, it took me 30 times getting on stage before I had a time where I was like, that was great. And I, people were high-fiving me. So 29 times I got off stage and I was like, that was okay. So at first it was not easy at all. Sometimes it was very painful, but I just liked it. I, I knew that it would eventually work out. And, um, and even when I got to be fairly decently good at it, um, I still think that, you know, everything was a very gradual path for me of just constantly getting onto little shows. Uh, no, no, I wasn't jumping onto comedy clubs immediately. I was just doing open mics, doing little shows here and there, submitting to hundreds of festivals, just always trying to find a place to, to find an audience, test out my material, and eventually you accumulate the jokes that work. That's awesome. It's awesome. You're a process guy. So you're teaching the audience that we're educating people to get through life, how to come up with a process to plan and execute. I want to backtrack to Google and diversity, but okay. shame on me, right? Uh, the whole thing with George Floyd, I wasn't paying attention to systemic racism and, and economic inequality. But one thing I missed that was horrible too, being a workaholic was to show the office. And my wife knows that I'm a guy that likes to know everything when I get into something. So now she's watching The Office. And I'm listening to the podcast, The Office Ladies. And to link back to what you said before, uh, a show would bring a guy like you on, right, to solve problems. Because most of the podcasts are talking about different problems they had in episodes. And the different writers like yourself who came in and solved the problem. And I'd like to ask you about uh, sitcoms like that. They give you a general out, not a general outline. They give you the backstory. I'm just guessing you're the expert, right? I'm just a novice. But uh, they give you the backstory. They give you where they're going, where they want to go. And you come in and you craft an episode with the details. And even after somebody has come in, they can bring in a guy like you. And you would be perfect for it as a problem solver design theory guy 
you come in and you solve, you can also solve micro problems in an episode. Yeah, I think that writing staffs for sitcoms have um, some very interesting challenges they're solving. First of all, the showrunner has to establish the season arc. So they know what are the big things that are happening in the, in the season premiere, in the season finale, and what is going on in the middle to get us there. Because if you don't make those decisions and you let individual writers go and write the, the episodes and they don't connect, the audience is gonna know something's not, this is all choppy, this isn't working. You need to see a season arc. Um, and then often they will, um, dis they will take pitches from their staff writers for, uh, for episode ideas, or sometimes they will lay out the episode ideas, but, but then they'll, they'll farm out each episode to a different writer on their staff, but, but it doesn't end there. So like, and I think most, most good writers do kind of use outlining so they, they know the basic points of you know, what is the, what is the beginning of this episode? Where, where does it end? Before they start writing the dialogue, they know each scene. Why is this scene here? Each scene should be, scenes shouldn't just be there to be funny. Scenes are going to show you something about a, a, a character um, changing. They're, they need a dynamic aspect to them. And, um, and, you know, finally, I think if they bring in a comic such as, I've done this a few times, I've punched up um, scripts. Uh, I like that challenge too. So right. whether you're a, writer who knows who's given a season arc and now you have to pitch episode ideas or you're given the episode idea and now you have to write out the script or you're given a script and you have to make it funnier you know um i think you can all i, I love it's almost like sculpture any anything where you're adding material but also carving and taking away that's what writing is like it's um it's kind of like painting or sculpture where you know i can add a joke here but i can also make something funnier just by trimming or cutting some of something that wasn't funny the whole gets funnier. So I, I do enjoy that, yeah. So, so I imagine you've got a script going too, right? <laughs> I've written some you're scripts. Like me. You're like an entrepreneurial ADD. We have all these projects there, but you're smarter than me because you have an engineering mind and you have a whole process and a list you're going through. Well, I don't know about that, but yeah, I my thing is joke writing. I really mostly um, love writing the, the short jokes that like a comedian tells at the, at the beginning of a late night show, the monologue, we're talking about the news. Um, I do enjoy, what's that? I'm fascinated by that. And then the Trevor guy from South Africa, he does such a great job. Yeah, Here. Haley Show, Trevor oh. Noah. Yeah. Trevor um, Noah. And you know, I, I do write sketches. Um, I'm, I, I haven't really done too much screenwriting on my own, but I've written some screenplays with friends and I, I love story structure. It's just another like puzzle for me to solve. So right. yeah. And, and let me throw to you this, right, from my uh, English background. Does all comedy come from tragedy? <laughs> well, it can. I think, I think comedy comes from a handful of, of uh, places. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save my specialty, which is written jokes for last. Right. Let's talk about the other things. Comedy can come from character alone. So a funny voice, an impression, Sometimes that, that's like the analog version of comedy. And, right. and absolutely, a funny voice or an impression, something about someone's voice or personality, what's coming through in the performance alone can absolutely be funny and make you laugh. But I find that that is like inspiration where you either have it or you don't. And it's like, it's like a lightning bolt. Like take something like someone like Chris Farley or Eddie Murphy or someone who's just right. explosively funny in every moment of their life. And yes, 
If you have it, great. But if not, what do you do? Well, for me, the, the other ways to approach comedy is through, through, through writing. So, I mean, um, with stand-up, you got observations and with uh, uh, scenes, you have jokes and this and that, or scenes, you have dialogue and this and that. But um, for me, the, the soul of a joke is irony. So whatever you introduce in the setup has to be perfectly matched in a surprising way by the punchline. So like, there's a joke I did this week uh, where I said, um, there's a story of Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. I don't know if you've been following this, but Johnny Depp- Yeah, no, I saw that on your, yeah, on your- uh, Yeah. Your website. So, so they're, they're in court and, and they're saying ridiculous things about peeing and pooping in, in the bedroom. And, and so basically um, Amber Heard claims that, uh, or Johnny Depp claims that his, girl, his ex-girlfriend Amber Heard um, pooped in the bed. And my joke was, it turns out the alleged poop was just a DVD of Pirates of the Caribbean 4. You know, so I mean, I'm, I'm making fun of his movie. I'm also uh, sort of um, sharing the news with the audience at the right. same time. But in the end, my punchline wouldn't work if I didn't say the setup first. So the setup is the perfect and most efficient and minimal um, sort of uh, alley-oop that gets the guy to actually put the ball into the, into the hole. So... That's you brought up uh, people that are the same on camera if they're off camera. I'm sure you have comics that just know how to turn it on, but then you have uh, the HBO shows like Insecure and Curb Your Enthusiasm. Is Larry David the same way off camera as he is on camera? It really seems so. I think he is, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think that if you combine, you know, someone who's a good performer with great writing right. then that's the ultimate that's the ultimate comedic outcome yeah so were you at google when the google manifesto came out what's the google manifesto the google manifesto will be very interesting something you can do a show on and the guy's still out there i'll send it to you so the I google manifesto 2010 so it was, it was a while ago oh okay well the years are running into when you get as old as i am the years start running into it, it seems like yesterday because people get diversity wrong. They think it's race, gender, uh, disability, but it's also discipline. You're discipline as an engineer and then your mom in the art world. So you're an incredibly diverse guy. And uh, you were born in LA, grew up in Chicago. Now you're back in LA, very, very diverse. And you own your own businesses and you got all these things going on. You're a very, very diverse individual. So what the Google Manifesto said, and now I'm writing for you, now I'm pitching you some writing. Uh, Google Manifesto said, basically, I'm boiling it down and I'll send it to you, that uh, an engineering group like you have, let's say uh, you bring seven guys and you guys go on a project. He said that absolutely he would never hire a black lesbian because what does a black lesbian know about that? <laughs> that's what the that's, that's in a nutshell the google manifesto because it, it, and it's very interesting right because when you said you were a google engineer that's the first thing that came to my brain right was the google manifesto and then you worked with guys like that right when i was at google it was a very diverse place i mean okay. gender and gender and race i mean very diverse rate race wise somewhat diverse gender wise and very diverse politics background ideas and age do you have any african-american or female yeah, bosses? There were. um i had 
definitely African-American and female colleagues. I didn't happen to have a boss that was, but I had a, I had a, a Hispanic uh, boss, I believe, and um, plenty of colleagues that were, um, uh, yeah, gender and, and racially diverse. And um, I think what's what was really cool about Google is, um, and you still work for them, right? So we don't want to say anything bad about you. We're no, just, I, no, I don't work for them. I, I don't work for them for information. Yeah. I worked for them for two years. I haven't worked for them for, for about 10 years now. Okay, so we can talk about Google. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I only have positive things to say because I think they're, by being at the top, um, but they had this motto, um, don't, don't be evil. And some people disbelieve that and think that they are an evil company. I actually found that most of the time that motto was was used in practice. Um, they they're just one of the only places I think that really uses top notch um, engineering and and sort of math um, uh, to solve problems with minimal user interfaces. I think most companies either become the products become too complicated or they just aren't doing a smart enough, cool enough problem in the first place. But Google takes extremely difficult problems and solves them and keeps their interfaces beautiful and um anyway when i was there some of the cool things about working there is that uh they have a lot of perks so besides uh there's like two meals and snacks just for free every day um you know good health care and all that but in stocks and stock options and all that but also um there's like free classes there's hundreds and hundreds of video courses and nice. presentations and they have they have famous people giving speeches at their main camps in San Francisco. I was in LA, but you can watch those live and ask questions live. And um, you know, there's a there's a masseuse on, on in almost every building. Um, nice. And you'd think, oh wow, they're really lavish. But actually, most of those things like food and the masseuse and all that, it's actually pretty closely tied to keeping you in the office and keeping you relaxed at work. <laughs> so they're not just giving out sports cars; they're like making it easy for you to be at work. I think that's something that a lot more employers should think about: is maybe pay people a teeny bit less, but offer them an incredible perks package, make them love the office and being at the office. You know um yeah no and thank you so much this has been such a master class thank you so much for the insight sure and, and podcasts like this do so much to eliminate income inequality and and the, the differences with wealth and we're going to go rapid fire right here because i know you have to go thank you for your time Next. i'm going to ask you two fast questions and then tell everybody where they can find you and we'll make sure we have all the episode links we'll retweet stuff and make sure that Sounds you get out there. We got like 500,000 impressions on Twitter. <laughs> we'll make sure you know Jeff and support Jeff because he's supporting us with incredible insight. Awesome. So a couple people you kind of like from the, you don't know these people, but you're looking at them from the outside. You've met them. Is Miley Cyrus as quirky in person as she is in her public persona? Uh, I guess the answer to that would be yes. My quick story on this is that I've only acted in a few things on camera. Um, uh, in uh, around the year 2008, it could be off by a year or two, I was cast to play um, Jay Leno's nephew in the wow. final episode of Hannah Montana. So this is the last episode of the Disney show, Hannah Montana. Oh, nice. I'll look it and, up right now. And in the show, she, the story of the show is that she has a secret identity with a blonde wig. So in this last episode, she goes on Jay Leno's show 
in, in, in the world of, that, of her thing, Jay Leno also has a show, just like real life, he has a show. So they shot it on the set of, the, of Jay Leno's show because he was still hosting God, late night. Yeah, totally. and, and she takes off her wig and reveals her secret identity on the last episode. Well, I play Jay Leno's nephew, Lenny, who has a crush on Miley Cyrus. So I did a scene with Miley and with Jay. The no thing way. With, now, Jay was super friendly. He was like talking to me. I was nervous and I didn't have anything funny to say to him. So I don't think I made that great of an impression on him, but he was very nice. He has a huge head. It's a huge face. He's a, uh, an interesting looking guy. Nice right. guy though. And, and I took a photo with him and that was fun. Um, and I he sort of looked like dying, him. Man. He was making $30 million a year to be that nice. That's super cool. Yeah, and I, I sort of looked like him if I put my, my, my jaw out, like, hey, what's going on? Um, but Miley Cyrus, she was, this was before her whole music career, right? She was still a little Disney actress, and she had her uh, uh, own makeup, uh, hair, and, and wardrobe people that she didn't share with anybody else on the set. Even the other lead actors, she didn't share them with. And she certainly didn't say anything like hi to me or anything like that. She was in her own world. But furthermore, she didn't even act in the scene opposite me. I didn't get to actually meet her. I was just in the room 10 feet away from her um, because she did her shots and then she went to go like tweet or something while I shot my side. So that was, <laughs> it was amusing, but um, it, was, uh, it was fun. And you can find this on the internet. If you search for my name and Hannah Montana, I actually have a a video where I edited just my moments. It looks like I'm starring in the show or something, but I'm not. It's a, uh, yeah, so that's Definitely funny. put a link to that on our website as well. You could, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah that's increasing. And does Matt Damon have anger issues? He always seems angry to me. Even though he's, sometimes he'll play a comedic role, he still has like that underlying kind of darkness behind him. Right. Uh, I'll tell you that story. It's a quick one. Um, uh, he doesn't have anger issues. He's the nicest guy. So no, no, I'm, no, no, no. I'm running my comedy show at a bar and it's a, it's a popular bar in West Hollywood. So sometimes celebrities come in. Uh, I had previously bumped into the guy who plays McLovin um, from Superbad there. And I yeah. bumped into uh, uh, Jimmy O. Yang from Silicon Valley there. Anyway, um, I, I had already gotten off stage and in the back of the bar, there's a guy kind of talking loudly. And so he's he's starting to interrupt the show so i go up to him because this is one of my duties by running a show i'm the guy who has to go tell someone to be quiet and i notice this guy it's really dark but i notice that he looks sort of like if matt damon had a fat bald brother because he was like <laughs> bigger than matt damon and he was bald right. and so matt damon doesn't look like that and so i i said hey man can you just be quiet for a few minutes and he he's totally nice he's like oh yeah 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 and he's nice and quiet and watches the rest of the show and then on my way out, the bouncer, I tell him the story and the bouncer goes, no, I saw that guy's ID. That was Matt Damon. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it turns out that he wasn't fat. He was actually really buff and muscular under his jacket because he was in that movie Elysium and he wasn't bald. He had shaved his head. If you remember, that was the movie where he went to Mars and he was jacked, he's super buff, muscular, and had shaved his head. And so my conclusion is I told Matt Damon to shut up. And he listened to me. So it was a, it was a pretty good moment for me. And uh, that night I, I went home and I updated my resume, directed Matt Damon. Nice. <laughs> 100% the truth. 100% the truth. Uh, yeah, the, the skit and stuff you do on YouTube is phenomenal. How can people find you? What's the name of your YouTube channel, your Twitter handle? And we'll make sure we have it all on the episode notes. Okay, we'll, great. Heck, we'll pull a whole page for Jeff on our website, man. With awesome. your permission. I, I would love that. Um, so I'm on Twitter, uh, Jeffrey Plitt, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y-P-L-I-T-T. -T, and I post jokes every day on the news there. Um, nice. 
So that's fun to follow. Uh, I'm also on Instagram, Jeff underscore Plitt. And my YouTube, uh, the show is called What You Need to Know with Jeff Plitt. The channel is Jeffrey Plitt too. I don't know. It's, it's a little, I'm still trying to figure out how to SEO and make it easier to find. But if right. you find me on Twitter, I'm often posting uh, the show. And if you, if you just Google my, uh, search YouTube for my name, those clips will come up. So uh, that's the best way to find me. And I am looking forward to anyone who's listening to uh, connecting with you online. Follow me on Twitter, uh, check out the show or, or Instagram and uh, looking forward to, to, to seeing uh, your little uh, comments and, uh, and faces. That's awesome. And you also got 3 million downloads, right, on TikTok? Yeah, I'm on TikTok. Um, I don't even need to plug it because it's already doing so well. Somehow I hit the jackpot on TikTok. I have 3 million views. Um, uh, not every video has millions and millions of views, but several of them hit the jackpot. Um, several videos got like a million each. And uh, TikTok's fun. It's, it's really a place for a lot of organic growth. In fact, for anyone who's creative, not only just creatives, um, business people, um, artists, um, even just people, academy, academics. I think TikTok's a, a wonderful place to spread knowledge and, and just honestly to get traffic because it has the most organic views of any platform right now. So you can, you can get a following. I, I follow some fitness people that just, you know, do, it's, it's 60 seconds max. So I follow some right. fitness people that will just show you some exercises for a minute. Um, I follow business people that will show you how to set up Facebook ads. Uh, I follow comedians and, and impressionists and girls who do um silly dances of course and uh you know it's it's fun so tiktok uh i i didn't realize how much fun it was till i started actually creating content for it but it is fun to just it's addictive to just watch it too i, I like it so check that out too i'm on there look for me um search for what you need to know all one word that's my uh account on there that's awesome thank you for your time never get advice from somebody who's not busy man just definitely busy uh, Josh, it's been a close with Winston Churchill. He's, he, Jeff gave us such great insight, such great education. You can't get anywhere else. They don't teach this in school. And we always end with Winston Churchill's quote. Got us through World War II. You make a life from your labor, but you make a living from your labor. You make a life from what you give. Thank you for listening to the ESBC Podcast Network. Thanks, Josh. Yeah, let me finish the, the streams real quick. It was very fun. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I was going to ask that if you had a good time. Absolutely did. Yeah. I love what you're doing. All right. Awesome. You have a great vibe. I, I like the questions you ask. And, and... I'm the best there is.